such things. So um, we're going to be live on YouTube in a second if I can get streaming to work. There we go. There we are. Okay. We are now live on YouTube. So enjoy. I have to admit, people. Okay. So today we are going to look at um, Galatians chapter five, which is a very, very um, important and interesting passage of scripture. Um, all of you are familiar with Galatians 5, at least the end of it, because the end of Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. So you've heard of the fruit of the Spirit, probably. Uh, you might even know the fruit of the Spirit. You might be able to say them from memory, but love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Um, but maybe not, but at least probably has heard of it. But that's the end of Galatians 5. So Galatians 1 starts off talking about freedom and we're going to talk tonight mostly about freedom in Christ, what that means, what it doesn't mean. And then also um, Paul gets into this whole issue with circumcision and the law and how that is the opposite of freedom. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And obviously anything you guys want to bring up otherwise is also fine. So let's begin with a prayer. And then if anybody has any questions, we can take those as well. So let's let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, on this day, we thank you that though we come before you with all kinds of sins and weaknesses, though we have failed to observe your will and live according to your desires for us, yet you are the God who rejoices to forgive us. And so we come before you because of your mercy in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and we praise you that our sins are forgiven. And we ask you in this hour to instruct us by your Holy Spirit that as we read these words that you have given to us through your Apostle Paul, that we would read them according to your will and that we would see our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Okay, so any questions from last week or any other week that you've been wanting to ask or have been on your mind? Okay, seeing none, let's, let's read the text. So let's read Galatians. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. Someone read that for us, please. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do, some, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Okay, thank you very much. So 
there is obviously a ton in that little passage, a lot of theology, um, a lot of teaching, a lot of contrast. There's actually a lot of wordplay in Greek. Um, the way he writes this, he kind of uses the same sounds over and over in contrasting ways, which is really kind of fun. Um, so yeah, we'll take some time and just, and just work our way through this. And again, this is a, this is a, an important transition in the, in the book of Galatians. And we'll talk about that as well. Well, I guess we should do that before we get too far. So first of all, you'll notice in your, in your Bibles that this first verse of chapter five, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Um, in our Bibles, it starts a new chapter. Um, you might have a subheading above that verse. You might have a paragraph marker after or before that verse. And that's all fine, but we're not totally certain whether this verse actually ends chapter four and the thought of chapter four, or it actually transitions into chapter five and the thoughts of chapter five. The reason is, is because if you remember last week, chapter four, we were talking about this slave woman and free woman and how we are not of the slave woman, but we are of Jerusalem above, which is free. And then you transition right in from that into for freedom, Christ has set you free. That would make a total sense um, that this is the concluding thought to, to Paul's argument in chapter four. It also makes sense if, if it's kind of the beginning of Paul's argument in chapter five. And if you, if you look ahead, then um, let's see, it's easiest to say it in verse 13, in 513, you kind of see this again, for you are called to freedom, brothers. So is this, some people say 5.1 is beginning of the thought that goes through chapter five and six. Um, and so it's a transition in looking forward. And I think this is actually a place where, um, have you guys ever heard of a Janus? Janus is, is the idea of something that looks, that it looks both directions. So it's, it's a face that looks both, both forward and backwards. It was, it should have arms. Most people have arms. Um, but Janus is, is a, it's actually a Greek God. And the idea was that a Janus face is kind of looking both directions. And that's kind of the way this text functions. I think, I think the best way to look at this, this little verse is that it both concludes the previous section with a discussion of being born of the free woman and it transitions us to the next thought. So it's kind of a nice transition statement in Paul's writing here. And I mean, there's there's lots of things we can go into about this with the Greek grammar, but that's not gonna help anybody. But just, just so you know, and again, I, I always encourage you guys to read the, the New Testament this way is at some point read all of Galatians in one sitting and kind of ignore the chapter breaks, just kind of read through it like one long text. Um, remember, this was probably written to be read out loud and they would not have necessarily stopped. They would have paused like we would with paragraph breaks and emphasis, but they wouldn't have like, you know, stopped, you know, then come back next week and study the next chapter. They would have read it kind of all in one long reading. So at, at some point, not just Galatians, but every book of the Bible, do this if you can. Just, just kind of read it, especially the New Testament. Read it in one sitting. I, I say New Testament because some of the Old, Old Testament books will get a little long. Uh, my friend tried to do the book of Psalms and um, it didn't quite work. You need to launch at some point because that's a long book. But, but especially the New Testament books, you can do it. It doesn't take that long, really. Um, some of the longer ones might take you an hour and a half or two hours to read all the way through, but most of them 
won't even take that long to not even half an hour necessarily. So, so at some point, sit down with the book of Galatians and just read it through, ignore the chapter breaks and you just kind of listen and, and ignore the subheads too. just, just kind of listen to the words of the text, listen to Paul's argument. It really helps solidify kind of how this thing flows together. And again, that's one of my, one of my frustrations of the way that I teach is that we're breaking up into little bits all the time. And I don't like that because it, it's, it's more of a holistic text. And I, I guess I want you guys to see that, especially in these, these great transitional verses where Paul is kind of working with the, the, the logic and the arguments in this way. So that's what we're looking at in five is it's going to transition from four into five. Five and six definitely form kind of a little unit to end the letter on. This is very common in Paul's writing where you kind of have this, this theology you kind of have this discussion of the theology, and then you kind of have this um, how to live out this theology at the end of the letter. And it's just kind of a way that Paul does things. Not always, but, but it happens. We saw this when we, when we read through Ephesians. So we're kind of into this section now of he's going to talk about the, the daily life of the Galatians, the church, and even the individuals therein. So that, that's kind of the section we're in. Okay. Any questions on the introductory stuff before we get to question one? I do have a question that, it, that has never, ever, ever occurred to me until you just brought it up just now. And this may be a little bit of a tangent, but, um, you know, we talk a lot in our context about, uh, or at least you have anyway, about the section headers and the chapters and things. But like you mentioned, if there were people back then reading directly from the Greek, from the first manuscripts, how did they, I mean, there's no punctuation in this, no, nothing. How would they read it? Do we have any idea how it was? Yeah, we actually today? do. Um, so there were people who were trained to read manuscripts out loud and that was their training was they were trained to break, break up words and to recognize, you know, the right way to break words up. And so some of the, some of the early manuscripts we have actually have marks in them where they thought paragraphs should go, um, even places where it was hard to figure out how words should be broken up. You actually have marks kind of marking that. So these are, these are the notes that an oral reader would write in his manuscript was, you know, hey, um, this is a place to pause. This is where the thought changes. So you might want to pause and emphasize this. Um, much like you would, if anybody here has ever presented a text orally that they didn't write, you know, it's one thing to, to kind of say your own stuff out loud, but if you're reading, maybe some of you have read in church or something like that, right? And you kind of go through the night before and you try to find the hard words and you kind of write your little phonetic spelling in so you don't mess it up publicly, that kind of stuff. So we actually have those notes from very early on with biblical texts and other texts where you kind of have these little notes in the margin of what to say, or you have little lines above the text or under the text to kind of break up words. And, and that's, Honestly, some of the, the manuscripts, that's where we get some of our paragraph markings is that the manuscripts actually have evidence in them that the earliest oral reading of this text would have paused at this juncture. Um, this is actually very evident in our Hebrew manuscripts where we have actual breaks that are marked with certain um, disjunctive accents. And even they have little letters in them that, that mark the end of sections for us. So this was a practice that, that would have actually been done. The manuscripts, no spaces, no punctuation, just letters strung together, capital letters. And then when someone was trained to read that out loud, they would have made marks. Um, most of it, they would have just been trained to recognize by sight, but they would have actually made some marks in, in the margins. And, and we do still have some of those. We still even 
kind of argue about what they mean sometimes. So yeah, that's praise that's be to God that somebody invented punctuation eventually. Exactly. And so we're all thankful for the, the grammar that we all hated to learn in, in school, but it, it makes it a whole lot easier to read, I'll tell you. So although all having said that, it is remarkable that if you if you read for a while without punctuation and spaces, your brain actually automatically kind of sections off words. You also realize how many times you don't know how to section them off. You'd be like, I don't know, is it this or it could be this or that, right? So yeah, but um, that's that's part of the issue is we've we've defined all these things for us. We don't our brains don't have to do the work anymore. We just just give them to us. So yeah, it's easier. Good question. Okay, all right. Let's get to number one. Number one. So from what did Christ set us free? It says for freedom Christ has set us free. So from what? From our eternal life being based on our compliance with the law. Okay, so so one thing is, one thing Paul is certainly talking about is he's freed us from being, remember Galatians 4, under the law, right? Look at Galatians 4, so the previous chapter, Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, where it says, um, when the time had come when the fullness of time had come god sent his forth his son born of a one of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so redemption language is setting free language in the slavery contents context so we were set free from being under the law so good we no longer are under the law when it comes to our salvation very good okay so one of the things we're set free from is we're set free from the burden of being under the law to determine our salvation. What else have you been set free from? That's good. Would you say not only the burden of our obedience, but the penalty of our actual disobedience? Okay, good. So then we've also been set free from the results of us failing, which is in Galatians chapter three, it's the curse that results from breaking the law, right? So not only are we free from the burden of the law, we're also free from the curse that results from our breaking the law, which we usually use a very small word to describe that right? We're free from our sin and the punishment of our sin. That's exactly right. So, so in the book of Galatians, we're freed from the law. We're also freed from the curse that comes when I break the law. So not only am I free from the burden of trying to keep the law, when I mess up, I'm even freed from that. Okay. So, so this freedom is really from the law and the effects of the law. Okay, so both the law and its effects. And, and primarily then for us, the effects of the law is going to be sin and death, which Paul talks about more in other of his writings. But yeah, sin and death. Okay, 
Now, what this means, I just want to make sure we say this explicitly, is that this is not this is not freedom like we talk about in American political systems. Okay, this is not saying that Christ has given us freedom like an individual has autonomous freedom in their civil rights from other people. That is not what Paul is talking about. As a matter of fact, he's actually going to say the exact opposite pretty soon. So uh, some people will use this text in a very American religious liberty um, kind of Christian nationalism type of type of view. And that is not what Paul is talking about here. Like I said, he's actually going to say quite the opposite here pretty soon in Galatians is that this is not that he has set us free in order to be free vis-a-vis -vis other people in our individual liberties, right? But this is going to be a freedom that actually ends up with our service to others and our denial of self. Okay, that's the freedom he's talking about. So, so the other thing that we're going to get to is that Paul is also talking about in a very real way, he, we're, we are free from love of self. Okay, we are freed from the love of self and we are freed to love others. Okay, and we're going to get later into what it looks like when we love ourselves, and what it looks like when we love others. And the contrast that Paul draws is staggering. Um, yeah, it's quite staggering. Okay. Any questions or thoughts on that? Hey, Kevin. Yep. You think that I was saying back to John where Jesus said, the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. I know he talked about being a, whoever sins is a slave of sin. Can you maybe compare and contrast how this is same or different? It's, it's very similar. Um, I actually think this is, that's what Paul's alluding to. I think he's actually drawing on that teaching of Jesus from John eight. Um, not saying that he would have had the book of John in front of him, but that he knew the teaching of Jesus that was recorded in John eight. And I think that, this is actually a very prominent metaphor because um, being set free, this whole freedom idea, it goes back to the Exodus where God is defined as the God who sets his people free. He sets them free from their slavery. You know, literally they were in slavery in Egypt. So he sets them free from their slavery and this becomes the Exodus is the action of God by which he saves, right? It's the action of God by which he saves. That's the book of Exodus. That's the whole action of the Exodus. And then in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, we actually, we actually learn the character of God. by which he's motivated to do this action to save. And what we learn is that the characteristic of God is that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He delights in forgiving the sins. And so what we have in the book of Exodus is the action of God to save 
and the character of God to save why he does it. And that, that action of God is really rooted in the setting free of his people. So now God's people are literally defined as those whom God has set free. Okay. So I think, I think all this language, I think, I think John, Jesus's language and John, I think Paul's language, I think some of the other language that Jesus used in the gospels, certainly Isaiah's language really goes back to the Exodus and the idea that when we want to know who God is, we say he's the God that sets his people free. Okay. And so that then becomes this great prophecy of the action of God to save his people and therefore define his people. And then that action is fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Christ, which obviously is a very different thing than this, because it's not setting free his people from physical slavery to an overlord. It's setting free all people from the, the effects of sin, the overlord of sin, death, and the power of the devil. And again, the Exodus was only for the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, that's what defined it as an event was that it's, it's pulling God's people out of a nation and saying, you're my people because you are the only nation I saved. Whereas the cross then, remember the scandal, one of the things that Jesus does is scandalous on the cross is he says, this is for all. This is for all nations not just Israel, like the Exodus, this now prophesies to this, which is a greater setting free, and it's for all nations. It's for all people of all time and all places, all sins. So so maybe that wasn't what you asked, but I hope it was. Um, I, I do think that's, that's kind of where Paul is getting this language is, is, yeah, I think he's hearing the teaching of Jesus that's recorded in John 8, but I think he's also, as a, as a Pharisee, an expert in the Old Testament, he's looking back and he's saying, this is this is how God defines Himself. He is the God who sets us free. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I a real keeper is that what you said. God's people defined as the people He has set free. I, I really like that. Yeah, and I, yeah. So that's the whole point then of Exodus nineteen. If you want to read that, that's kind of what Exodus nineteen is about, which is actually the the text that First Peter uh, two nine. Is actually quoting okay and you know that by heart so you can look that up okay yeah it's very good any other thoughts or questions on that all right number two what is paul's point about circumcision Well, verse six really answers that, which is, uh, it doesn't make any difference because it's our faith. But I think he brings it up because that was an argument that they were having in Galatia at the time. Okay, so good. So he, it's, it's funny because he's like, if you submit to circumcision, you have nothing to do with Jesus. And then later he's like, but it doesn't really matter. Like, whatever. Circumcision, uncircumcision, who cares? like well what's going on like that's just weird he says he does that in in five verses so it's not like you know he develops theology or something so so he's not really talking about the actual acts of circumcision being a problem what he's what he's talking about and i think this is what you're, you're getting at is that it was a it was an issue for the galatians whether or not they had to be circumcised and follow the jewish laws 
all associated with circumcision. So what he's really talking about with circumcision is if you submit yourself to the law, that's what circumcision is doing this in this instance. These are these are non-Jews being told that in order to be saved, in order to receive the benefits of God's work in Christ, they have to be circumcised and put under the Jewish law. Okay, and he says, if you do that, you're you're, you're out. You're you're not with Christ anymore. Okay, so so this becomes a really important um, teaching. Obviously, is that. Um, it's again, it's not the physical act of circumcision that, that he's really freaked out about because obviously Paul is circumcised and he later says circumcision doesn't make any difference. But what he's talking about is remember, I've told you before that, that at, at his time, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites were marked by circumcision, their food laws. And observing the Sabbath. These were really the major markers of what made you a Jew and distinguished you from the people around you. Okay. So if you were really a follower of Yahweh, the Pharisees would say, these are the things that really mark you off. If you do these things, you're in. If you don't do them, you're out. So this is this is kind of the lead thing is that circumcision which is the promise given to abraham in genesis it, they said this is kind of the mark of being a jew is that you must be circumcised and paul is saying here that these things do not define you as the people of god if you are looking at these things at all to define whether or not you are a child of God, you are severed from Christ. You are not with Christ. Okay. So he's saying these things do not identify you as God's child, as a, as the church, as the people of God. So if you want to say, am I related to God? Don't look at circumcision. Don't look at food laws. Don't look at Sabbath. Don't look at any law right? Instead, look only and always at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, that's how I'm related to God. Nothing I do, nothing the law prescribes, simply God's action in Christ to save. Okay. And this goes back, I just want to remind you of this, this goes back to Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. Okay, so Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Well, we could really start at 19. So Galatians chapter 2, verse 19, and we should read through 21. So Galatians 2, 19 through 21 says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Okay? So that's what he's recapitulating here. He's saying, look, if, if, you, want, if you want to live 
between you and God on basis of the law, then you are discounting Christ. Okay? So that's why circumcision is such a big deal for Paul, because he's seeing this as them being put back under the restrictions of the law, and that's a denial of the death and resurrection of Christ as the soul means. Okay? Questions on that or thoughts? Kevin, is this a kind of the same general idea as the Hebrews writer about going back to the Old Testament? It just Paul's kind of saying it a little different way. The difference between Hebrews and Galatians is that the Galatians were never there in the first place. Someone's trying to put them there, whereas the Hebrews seems to be written to a bunch of Jewish Christians who are thinking about going back to being under the Old Testament covenant. Where in Galatians, it seems like someone is coming in and saying, this Jesus stuff is okay, but you need to go to the Old Testament first and then kind of add that to Jesus. So that so the difference in Hebrews is it seems Hebrews seems to be written to a bunch of Jews who are Christians who are considering going back and trying to live in the sacrificial system. Does that make sense? Yeah, it seems like the end result's the same. Here yep. you're severed from Christ, and there you're um what uh you you're know, chapter six. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, it's the same problem. That's exactly right. It's just kind of a different perspective, but that's exactly right. I, I sort of have a question to piggyback onto that, which is something that may be a fundamental chapter one, you know, precursor question that maybe I should have thought of a long time ago, but um, it doesn't seem like there is a proposition here that there are two systems. I mean, if you think about, you know, someone like Peter, who this is sort of a problem for, right? We sort of know historically that there was this circumcision party and he was kind of not willing to cast them off. But it doesn't seem like they're saying, well, you know, we also who have been Jews are, are going to return to this, but rather just you new Gentiles. And I'm wondering, is there a proposition here of a, of a graduation sort of process? Like, okay, you have to be Jews first and then you won't have to deal with the law like us now. Or, or is there a proposition here that they are going to uniformly all together, all of this new nascent Christian church, going to revert back to this? I, I guess I, I never really considered this disparity between, well, you new converts need to do this because we've already done that. We've already been Jewish. Uh, or, or is there something bigger going on here? Does that, does that make sense? I, I'm not totally sure what you're asking. I think, um, are you asking whether or not the false teachings of the Gentiles, well, they had to go back yeah well so uh, uh, my understanding is that the, the whole issue here of circumcision i mean the question of circumcision is for those who have not been circumcised right but for you know for the for the the converts from judaism you know for the apostles and and uh, you know i guess not all of them but you know for the large preponderance of of the new christians they came from judaism right mm -hmm. So they've already had that circumcision. Maybe they already figure, well, of course, we're God's people because we had this thing. And so you've got to do that, too. So I guess what it would just kind of to piggyback on that other question is uh, what is actually the proposal here? Is it, is it that only these new Gentile converts are going to have to have to be put under this yoke of the law? And then after a while, OK, you did your time now. Now you can be Christian. Or, or is there some larger proposal that, oh, actually, all of us, you know, we're really all going to have to do the Jewish thing now? But well, so or, that, is it, or is it that some of them were past that? I think that the real, from what we can gather, and again, we don't have it exactly written out, but what we can gather in Paul's writings here and other places, and also uh, the early church fathers tell us some of this, is that the proposal was, was simply this. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. If you want to be saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have to be Jewish. And the way for a Gentile to become a Jew 
is to be circumcised and to submit themselves to the food laws. It's that simple. There's no transmissions. There's no moving and, and sliding away. There's simply, in order to be saved by Jesus, you have to be a Jew. And therefore, non-Jews have to become Jews and Jews should stay in their Judaism, which is what Paul is actually accused of in Jerusalem is leading people away from Judaism. See, it's, it's not that that the real charge against Paul is he's, he's preaching Jesus as the Messiah. The real charge is that he's leading people away from Judaism. And so, so what it seems like these false teachers in Galatians and other places that Paul deals with are saying is Jesus is great. That's all fine. But remember, he's Jewish. So if you want to be saved, you need to be Jewish too. And what Paul is getting at is that actually to truly be the people of God is to simply believe in Jesus. It has nothing to do with being Jewish according to Old Testament law. The people of God are simply now defined by faith in Christ. That's it. It doesn't matter if you're born in the ancestry of or the progeny of Abraham. It doesn't matter if you weren't. It's the same for y'all. It doesn't matter if you were circumcised when you were born you know, in the Jewish faith before you were a Christian or you weren't. It doesn't make any difference. All that matters is Christ. So this is really his point in Philippians 3 is he goes, if you want to start playing the who am I game and how do I qualify for this? Paul says, I win that game easily. And I got, I got all the credentials. I can lay them out for you. And then he says, but this is all rubbish. This, this literally doesn't make any difference. The only thing that matters is Christ. So I think, I don't know if that helps, but that, that's kind of the whole, I, the whole enchilada is, is whether or not Jesus is the Messiah for the Jews, and therefore you need to be Jews to, attach, to be attached to Jesus, or whether Jesus is the Messiah of all people and Judaism simply no longer matters. Yeah, that does help. And, and I mean, I think it really is kind of basic, and you've been driving at it this whole time, but it just occurred to me to kind of think, were they proposing a a two-party system here or, or what exactly, but, uh, but I think ultimately the, the crux of the issue is, is salvation by Jesus plus something, anything, right. heritage or works or whatever, or is it just Jesus, which is still a problem that, that the church at large has today? And remember, the answer, the answer to your question is actually even more simple than I made it. It's just in the text. So go to Galatians 2.16. I know you're, you're walking around or whatever, but when you look it up, Galatians 2.16, it says, well, if you go out to 2.15, it says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, but listen to this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. See, what he's saying is he's not saying that this faith in Jesus stuff is just for Gentiles. He's saying faith in Jesus is salvation for Jews. And, and we are Jewish people, and we know that it's not by works of the law that we're saved. So, so he's not saying that there's one way for Jews, another way for Gentiles, and you kind of got to, you know, figure that out and transition back and forth or grow into one or the other. He's actually saying it doesn't matter who you are. Faith in Christ is all that matters. Jew, law's gone. Gentiles, you're never under the law. Don't put yourself under the law, right? Christ. Thank you. Yep. Kevin? Hey. Yeah. Sounds like Susan. Is there something to be said for the fact that, uh, circumcision and the laws and uh, the Sabbath are all something that an individual does to like earn God's forgiveness? Well, that's, so that's the issue. Um, so number three, I'm not ignoring you. I'm answering. Number three is salvation by works acceptable Christian doctrine. 
can you say, well, you're saved by Jesus, but if you, if you think works are part of it, then, you know, do your best. That's okay. Does Paul think that's okay? Look at oh. what does he say? Elise, was that you? Well, what I was going to say is salvation by works would be only the work that Christ did on the cross. But if we want to live according to the will of God, then what we do is, and like, um, living a life that's pleasing to him that's mm -hmm. not earning salvation that's just living according to the will of god okay so see and four, that would right? be considered works like okay there. good good so so that's extremely well well said and well thought out very good is that when it comes to salvation works simply don't play any role but the law still exists as instruction for us and how we should live that's exactly right and so what the reason I'm bringing it up this way, Susan, this kind of gets to your question, is that what Paul's really teaching in all this is that the law never provided a way to salvation. Even for Abraham and Moses and the Jews in the Old Testament, the law was never what saved. Just never was. That wasn't the goal of the law. That wasn't the role of the law. It never has been. It never will be because the law always enslaves everyone under it as a curse. Go back to Galatians 3, right? Cursed is everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law. Nobody can stand up under this. The law always destroys us, always kills us, always condemns us. And that has never been the means of salvation. Remember when I drew this on the board and I erased it, of course, is that the Exodus was actually God's action to save his people. And God's people are defined by his action to save, right? So God saves, and that's that's who his people are. His people are those whom he has acted to save. It, it isn't those who fulfill the law. So, um, well, let's just look at this real quick. We've looked at this before in other classes, but let's let's just do it tonight because we're talking about it. Go in your Bible to Exodus, the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, Exodus, chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, which is where we find the giving of the Ten Commandments. So if you're talking about the law, this is the summary of the whole law, right? This is where we kind of say, especially if you've learned Luther's small catechism, this is the this is the law. This is where you learn the law. So Exodus chapter 20. And I just want to show you this because this is this is important. This is a very important idea here. Is that Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2 actually start like this. And God, God said this, right? God spoke all these words and said, I am the Lord, your God. What does that mean? I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a slave house. Okay. So what I'm saying is that God's action to save his people is what defined them as his people. Right now, the law has not yet been given. They were not saved because they kept the law. They were saved because God acted to save them. Then the law is given. And this is really the point, is that Paul is saying the same thing in Galatians 
is that if you submit yourselves to the law as though that is going to be the thing that defines your relationship to God, you are actually submitting yourself to slavery again, and you're rejecting God's action to save. You're saying, I don't want God's action to save. I want to go back to slavery. Paul is saying, if you do that, you are cut off from Christ. Okay, and that's a wordplay. Circumcision and being cut off. Trust me, it's a wordplay. All right. There's actually several other wordplays we've skipped in this, but that one's kind of the most obvious. So does that make sense? So, so one thing, one thing I, the reason I bring this up is because when I was, when I was a little Lutheran back in the day, when I was a little Lutheran growing up, I'm not sure I was ever taught this, but this is what I thought I was taught. I thought I was taught in the old Testament that the way you were saved was by, by following God's law, by doing good. And then Jesus came and said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to take that. You don't do that anymore. Now it's by grace. And so it's like, shoo, I'm so glad I'm not an Old Testament guy. I'm so not an Old Testament Lutheran because that was so much harder. And I even heard people preach the gospel this way. It's like, well, some of y'all think you got to earn your salvation. Well, I'm here to tell you it's easier than that. It's like, what? No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that Jesus makes it easier. It's that the law was never given for us to be saved by it. The thing that that saves you has always been the case is God's action because of his character as a God of love. That's what saves you. And, and this is literally what defines you now. You are defined by God's action to save you. And this actually means that when we live in this world, that's who we are. We are the people that God has acted to save. And that salvation is done. It's so, complete. Okay. So by the way we live according to his will then sets us apart as his people. It, Correct? Well. Um, and then no, on top of that. No. What? I guess, but let me just be very, very specific. We, we live because we have been set free by what we have been set apart by what he did for us. We live our lives to, to bear witness to that. The, the, the way we live doesn't set us okay. apart. It actually bears witness that we are set apart. Okay. Can you live with that? Are set apart. Okay. Yep. Yes. Good. It makes sense. But then our desire to live according to his will, does that, is that where some people get the idea that the way we live is a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord? Yeah. So when so we're living Paul according to his will. So, so if we Romans 12 verses one and two is kind of the, the passage that people go to for this. And, and in Romans, so remember Romans well, we can't do the whole book of Romans in five. Well, we could actually, um, but but book of Romans basically takes you through the doctrine of justification um, in chapter three. Chapter four talks about how this is the way that Abraham and David were saved. Chapter five talks goes back to all the way to Abraham. Jesus is the second or second Adam. I mean, not Abraham, second Adam. Six talks about how this lives out in baptism. Seven is yeah, but I stink at this. Eight is the Holy Spirit 
is going to save you through through grace. And then 9 through 11 is a discussion about, about um, Israel and how it's saved. So then 12 says this. Now, therefore, in light of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then he goes on, he says, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You can test and approve God's will, that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. And so, Elise, what you're getting at is exactly right, that we desire to live differently because of what God has done for us. I desire to live according to his will because of what he's done for me, right? Not in order to get his love, but because he has loved. And that's where the law comes in. And that's where we still read the law and study it and rejoice in it. Because now this God who saves us has told us how we should live. And we're like, great. The God who saves me has a plan for how I should live and, you know, how I should exist. And, and that's, a, that's a wonderful, that's a blessed thing that, that God actually tells us his will for our lives. So we actually want to do that. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, good. Now, look at Galatians 5.5. 5. So Galatians 5.5. 5. Let's see if I can do this. Galatians, that's where we are, 5.5. 5. Okay? And you see that it says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I want you to remember the, the words, eagerly wait, hope, and righteousness and spirit. Okay. Can you keep those words in mind? Now go back what we just talked about the book of Romans, go back to Romans chapter eight, Romans chapter eight. And I just want you to, to listen as we read Romans eight, beginning at verse 18 and going through Let's go through 26, okay? So Romans 8, verses 18 through 26, and listen for these words, eagerly waiting, hope, righteousness, and the Spirit. Okay, so listen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoptions of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings through words or too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes to the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, or that he might be the first, firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Now, justified is the same word as in Galatians, which is translated righteous. Just trust me, righteousness, okay? And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what happens is Paul says almost the exact same thing that he says in one verse in Galatians. He expands it in Romans 8. And here's the point. Here's what I want you to see. Is that it's, it's through the Spirit. Okay? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is what's going to carry us through the rest of the book of Galatians. Is that the way we are attached to Christ the way we learn to live in Christ, the way we um, understand the will of God, the way we live in the will of God, the way we have hope, the way we eagerly wait for the second coming, the way we receive righteousness is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that then leads. Okay, I'm sorry, I should stop. Any questions before I move on? Okay, number four. Boy, we're just cruising right through the questions then, aren't we? What is Paul's definition of justification and sanctification? Well, that's a fun question. What's justification? Being made right is with God. What's that? Being made righteous with God. Right. So justification is, is righteous with God, being made right with God or righteousness in God. And how is that accomplished? Accomplished. Who does that? That's done by Christ, right? You are in Christ. You are in Christ if, if that's happening. And who does that to you? Is it by the law or is it by faith through the power of the Holy Spirit? Okay, that is justification. That we are righteous in God's sight because we are in Christ and his righteousness counts for us and we receive that by faith and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's been talking about this entire book of Galatians, right? Going back to Galatians 2.16, which is a clear statement. Even here, he recapitulates this when he says, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness for in Christ Jesus, right? That's where we live and we're justified. So that's justification. Very good. Now, what's sanctification? Made holy. Good. Sanctification means be made holy. That's what the word actually means. And what does he say here? How do we live holy lives according to this passage? Just look at verse 6. How do we do that? What are the words he uses? Faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith. Good. And that faith works through? The Holy Spirit. Yep. Good. So faith the, the power that's going to help us live out our faith is also this Holy Spirit. And this faith is going to work itself out in love. 
okay? That's what he says in Galatians 5, 6, is that this faith is going to work itself out in love. And so what happens is, and this is, this is what I want to bring up, is that salvation is 100% the work of God, right? So justification is 100% God's work. Sanctification is talked about in the same language. It's also your faith by the power of the Holy Spirit working itself out in love. Now, what is the love that justifies? What love saves you? Not hard. God's love in Christ. Yeah, good. God's love in Christ. So you think of the love that saves us. You go back to Galatians 2.20, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, right? That's the love that saved. Now, there is a love that's also involved in how we live out our faith. And this is what we're going to learn about the rest of the chapter, apparently not this week, is that this love goes out to neighbor. Okay? So what's added in sanctification is that love and this faith and this Holy Spirit now work through those who are saved in love to neighbor. And this is, this is how then we walk by the spirit and not by the flesh is that we live this, this love and faith that saves us also um, empowers us, um, teaches us, drives us to live according to the will of God, which is to love our neighbor. Okay. And that's what we're going to talk about pretty much the rest of the chapter is this justification and sanctification, how it plays out in our lives. Okay. Let's read. I want to go to the next section. Let's read seven through 15. Oh, did we do number three? Well, the answer is no. So, sorry. Let's read seven through 15. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Great. Thank you very much. Pretty harsh text, but we'll, we'll get to that next week. <laughs> we'll get to the harsh word next week, I guess. So number five, how serious is the charge of preaching false doctrine? What does he say? What does he want them to do? I guess we'll get to the hard part tonight. What does he want them to do in verse 12? Self-unification. Yes. That's, one, that's a good way to say it. Um, Basically, he says, just keep going, right? I, I wish you would just go all the way. And there's a lot we can get into with this, which we're not going to do. 
but but the point is remember this goes back to chapter one of galatians there's lots of parallels between this passage and galatians one and remember in galatians one he said let those who teach a different gospel be eternally condemned and this is the point is that this isn't this isn't a game this isn't you know some academic exercise of preaching the right thing according to certain doctrines or the wrong thing according to certain churches this is the eternal truth of god and who he is and who we are as a result that's what we're talking about and there is no room for false teaching here especially when it comes to how we are saved before god and i just want to review this for a second because obviously it's that important and it's, it's really the whole point of of paul's writing galatians is that why is salvation by works really false doctrine why is it not just kind of the wrong emphasis or well you know it's going to be it's a lot easier than that you don't have to earn your salvation no it really is a false doctrine and it's really an evil doctrine why is salvation by works an evil doctrine let's just say it that way because it takes away the power takes glory away from jesus exactly pam and lisa the same thing really it takes away the glory and the power from Christ. And that's exactly the point, is that this is what God did to save you. This is the Son of God crucified for you. This, it almost... Go ahead. It, was gonna, I, it makes me think that it's an elevation of self. Very good. If, if you judge yourself or others by their works... Yeah, exactly. Very good. So what happens is now we're saying the location of the action to save is not with God, but with me. And that has several different effects. One, you can say, well, you know, God must be pretty pleased with me. He must be pretty happy that I showed up and started doing good stuff. You could also start judging other people and say, well, you're not doing as well as I am, which is very bad judgmentally. But, but all of this takes the focus off from God's action in Christ to save, and it puts it on me. And it says, well, my salvation before God is really all about what I do. And, and all of a sudden, I become the most important thing. And the, the gospel says, no, it's not you. It's actually God's action to save that defines you as his child. And so this is why a, a preaching of a salvation by works in any way really ends up being an evil teaching because it's robbing Christ of the glory that only he deserves. Okay. Just listen. We don't have time to turn there right now because it's eight o'clock, but, but just listen to Philippians chapter two. And what it says, this, he says, it says that Christ humbled himself to the point of taking on a, the form of a servant and being found in fashion. man, he's, he submitted himself, you know, even to the point of death, even death on a cross and therefore God has highly exalted and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, there's no room for other lords. There's no room for other saviors. There is no room for you saying, well, you know, my salvation, look at me. No, it's, it's Christ and Christ alone. And, you know, in a, in a law sense, you don't deserve the glory that Christ deserves. He's the son of God who conquered sin and death. You aren't. As a matter of fact, you're a sinner 
who continues to sin. On the gospel side, there's this. This will never fail. This will never fail. God's salvation act for you is complete. It's not lacking. It's not missing anything. It's not contingent. It is done for you. Your sins are forgiven. All of them. God loves you. Done. For all of eternity, that's yours. And we don't look anywhere except for God himself, who is the one who will judge. And he says, I love you. You're forgiven. You're free. You're free from sin. You're free from death. You're free from the power of the devil. You get eternal life because Jesus has earned it for you. That's the good news. Okay. Let's pray. And then if anybody has any questions, I'm certainly happy to stick around, but I just want to let people go at eight o'clock if they need to. So let's, let's pray so people can go if they have to. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have provided salvation for us. That though we are under the curse of the law due to our sin, though we deserve your wrath, because of your grace and your mercy and your love for us, you have given us salvation and righteousness and forgiveness through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let us learn to live in that freedom and to love as you have loved us. And now this night, we ask you in your mercy to grant us a quiet rest. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have any questions, I'm happy to stick around.